welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Well, hello, my name's Sam. If I haven't um, spoken to you before or met you before, I'm on staff at the church. Um, I'm in charge of all the worship stuff. And uh, I have a bit of a kind of role around the creative uh, ministries as well of Adelaide Place Baptist Church. So we're returning to our series in the book of Genesis. We've had a few weeks off. We're picking up where we left off in the Tower of Babel, the scattering of nations. And we've been introduced to Abram, or as he gets called later, Abraham. Just FYI, for the remainder of this sermon, I'll probably call him Abraham. Otherwise, I'll get confused between which name I'm calling him. But he's basically the same guy. But we're here in this moment of the Genesis narrative that begins to shift. It begins to shift the remainder of the book towards God calling out and working through a particular people. But before we get into this story properly, I just want to re-establish for us a little bit where we've been so far. And it's because it's been a couple of weeks, so just it's good to have a bit of a reminder just to keep the whole narrative arc in mind as we carry on in our series of Genesis. And one thing that is important to stress, I think, that's been uh, said time and time again over these last few weeks, is that we're dealing with ancient literature here. This is an old piece of writing. So we can't approach this book like we would the latest paperback on the bestseller shelf at WH Smith just before we're about to get a flight somewhere. And so I wonder if you've ever picked up uh, or looked at or glanced at books like uh, The Canterbury Tales by Chaucer or Dante's Divine Comedy, or Milton's Paradise Lost. I wonder if you've ever studied um, Shakespeare, maybe you've looked at one of the plays in school. I think most people will probably have looked at a Shakespeare play in school at some point in time. And if you've ever glanced at any of these pieces of literature, or read them, or had to study them in school, you've realised that they're difficult to understand, aren't they, sometimes? If you begin reading a copy of Romeo and Juliet, there might be... Lots of things going on that you just can't get at just by a surface reading. It's not immediately obvious to us sometimes. There's lots of words, there's lots of turns of phrase, there's lots of places, there's lots of um, events that happen that are just totally unknown to us today. And sometimes we need just a little bit of help. One uh, from Romeo and Juliet that always got stuck in my mind, I think we did it in primary school, right in the opening scene, in the opening act, there's a bit of a, a, a tiff, there's a bit of a scuffle between two of the um, uh, Montagues and two of the Capulets, the two warring families. And there's this point where um, one of the characters is doing this, biting his thumb. And it's meant to be, if you were around at that time when this um, play was being written, it's the equivalent of like giving the middle finger. But you wouldn't know that unless you'd done a bit of analysis and someone told you this is what that meant. And so when I was first reading this in primary school, I'm thinking, what on earth is this biting the thumb all about? Why are they getting so upset over it? Why are they getting so offended over it? So we need a bit of help sometimes to understand what is going on with these kinds of texts. Shakespeare, Milton, all these old pieces of literature. And so it's no surprise then when we come to Genesis 
Genesis is even older than these texts, even older than Shakespeare, even older than Chaucer. So we shouldn't be surprised to find it difficult sometimes when we wrestle and come up against things that we find difficult. But don't let it put you off. There's a reason why you study someone like Shakespeare really rigorously and try to get at and understand everything that's going on. It's because it's so rich, it's so rewarding when you finally understand what's going on. And so the rewards of Genesis are infinite. Not just for us as a piece of literature, as something interesting to look at, but for our faith, for who we are and our faith in following Jesus. So one of the things that is helpful to keep in mind that as ancient literature... It wouldn't have been read quite in the same way, perhaps, that we read it today. Genesis is composed in movements, almost like a symphony. One of our Bible, the disadvantages of our Bibles, it's split up, isn't it, into chapters and verses. And one of the disadvantages of this is that it kind of breaks the text up a little bit. We lose sight of maybe some of these larger movements, these larger narrative arcs. Um, Stephen said right at the beginning of this series that... Genesis contains all these patterns, all these echoes, all these themes and variations. And these patterns, they become kind of more evident the more we read it as as a whole text in larger chunks. Texts like Genesis, they were written to be recited, to be performed almost in these larger movements. And so there's different debate as to how we can divide Genesis up into these movements. But I found one that I find really helpful is just in four movements. We've got creation and Noah and his sons and the Tower of Babel. That's one kind of movement. And that's one that we've kind of come to the end of in this series just now. Second movement, life of Abraham. Third movement, Isaac and Jacob, the sons of Abraham. And then fourth, the sons of Jacob. So that's Joseph and his brothers. And so there's these kind of four movements to Genesis, like a symphony. And it's interesting that right there at the beginning of this book... In the first movement, just like a symphony, you will have a musical theme established, a melody that you can hear again and again and again throughout the rest of the text, the rest of the movement. And things get, it it gets developed, it gets, things progress, but there's always this callback, there's always this pattern that you can recognize the more you kind of read the whole thing as a whole piece of work. And so Genesis works in this way. We have an established theme or pattern from the creation in the Garden of Eden. And then for the rest of Genesis, through the stories of different people and different generations, we keep hearing callbacks to this pattern, this theme. And this theme is, rather helpfully, kind of the theme of this series, longing for Eden. This is kind of one of the big themes. This is the melody that you're going to keep hearing again and again throughout the rest of these stories. Longing for Eden. Everything is about getting back to the garden, getting back to a perfect union with God. Eden is the place where humans dwell with God. And so all of Genesis and really all of the rest of scripture is, how do we get back there? Adam and Eve, they disobey in the garden. They fall away. They're exiled, banished from the garden, sent out from God's presence. The rest of the story is, what is God going to do to fix this problem? And there are instances of God's grace, God's promise, and God's covenant. People like Noah, they become almost like a second Adam. And there are moments of broken humanity continuing to fall away as well. Each time it feels like a character is returning to Eden, towards God's presence, almost like taking a physical step back to that place of dwelling. 
though never quite reaching it. Adam and Eve, they're banished from the garden. They're sent to the east. And each time there's a kind of replaying of the fall, each time a character in Genesis falls away or or, or suffers some kind of mishap along the way, there's an implied sense of moving further away from Eden, further east. Remember, again, another thing Stephen said in the series is that moving east in kind of biblical symbologies is kind of getting away from the promise and presence of God. And so we've had this culmination in our last look at Genesis, the Tower of Babel, Babylon, set up as like this ultimate symbol of exile. And of course, the echoes of significance for the Jewish people when they're carried off into exile, they're carried off to Babylon, the place that's almost the furthest possible place to be away from God's presence. It's a powerful indication of the curse that stretches right back to the beginning of the story in the garden. So it all matters, because here we are introduced to Abraham. We're given like another genealogy just before this bit. I saved uh, Jill the, the painful moment of trying to get through that. A generational connection to Noah and to Adam. Another point in time and another person whom God is going to invite to step towards that place of blessing and presence. So we're starting to get a clear pattern, a familiar theme, a familiar melody. Now, Abraham resides in a place called Ur. I think that word sounds great in my accent, doesn't it? Ur. I have trouble saying um, air, as in the place on the coast. Because if you've got a nice Scottish lilt, you can go air. But I can't. I have to go Ur. But this isn't air, this is Ur. So it's not 100% certain where Ur is. There are two potential places where Ur is. But one is near Babylon. So it doesn't kind of really matter which it is, but one is near Babylon. And so it's almost like the significance of the fact that Abraham and his family are living in a place close to Babylon, a place of exile. He's east of the garden. And God is calling him out of that place of exile. That first movement, Genesis 1 to 11, his first movement is, it's a movement of descent, a descent from the heights of the mountain of God in the Garden of Eden. Remember, we talked about the Garden of Eden traditionally being seen as on top of a mountain. It's a descent down into the depths of exile in the east, into Babylon. And Abraham marks a bold new point in this movement, a turning point, a calling out of exile. God is working. God is seeking to restore humanity into his presence. And I think it's interesting, some scholars have pointed out that from Genesis 1 through to 11, in this first movement, curses are mentioned five times. First one is God curses the serpent, God curses the work of the man, God curses Cain. Then the fourth curse is uh, the father of Noah repeats the curse of the ground that God makes. And then finally five, Noah curses Canaan. It's five curses up until this second movement. But when God calls Abraham, he blesses him. And he blesses him five times. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This kind of repetition, this emphasis 
Through Adam, all humanity, all people are cursed. Exile is their inheritance. But through Abraham, God is saying all people will be blessed. God promises to restore their inheritance. So the opening of Genesis, it sets a theme. It poses a question. How will God restore the world to himself? And we see through Abraham the bold beginning of a movement of God to begin to restore broken humanity, even at this point in the Genesis text, back to himself through a particular set of people. The pattern of the curse is already beginning to be reversed. Broken humanity cast out, and God is calling Abraham back from exile. And that pattern of sin that we see in the garden, it's impressed on us that that pattern of sin is this, almost like this motion to reach out and take, as Adam and Eve reach out and take the fruit, the forbidden fruit. The mistake of Babylon was to reach out and to take, to make a great name for themselves. But with Abraham, God makes a different way. With Abraham, God blesses Abraham first. And God promises that he himself will make Abraham a great name. Abraham's role in this isn't to reach out and take, but to receive and to give. This is the proper relationship of things that God ordained in the beginning in the garden to receive and to be blessed and to give back. And so the mystery and the wonder of the calling of Abraham is that God wants to work all of this out through a particular set of people. And this is a group of people, this is a a family, the family of Abraham. They're not even sure what it is that their future looks like. We're told that tragic circumstances have befallen this family. We're told that Abraham's father has three sons and that one of them he has to bury. And that Abraham himself, his eldest son, can't have children of his own. And so the commentator John Goldingay says this, the situation when the people of God has no capacity to generate a future is the situation in which God's promise speaks. Abraham's family can't really imagine a future for themselves. And that is the situation in which God's promise speaks. Abraham has no idea where he's going. He's told to just go. He has no prospects. He has no idea what he's going to find. And he has no way to have children. Once again, like Noah and his wife, Abraham and Sarah are being established as a kind of new Adam and Eve. And here are these promises, these blessings offered to Abraham. Their echoes, again, we're finding the same theme, the same melodies coming through again. The echoes of that original blessing for Adam and Eve. It's about fruitfulness, about multiplication. God is seeking to bless the whole world through a particular set of people. I want to call to mind um, the picture that we get in Revelation. All the way at the very end of the Bible, at the other end, we get a picture of the lamb who is slain and enthroned. And this picture of this great crowd around him, thousands, hundreds of thousands of angels and all the creatures of earth singing a hymn of praise. In Revelation, is that picture of the kind of culmination of this promise of all these people gathered together, united to God. 
that through the generations of Abraham, God is working his purposes through a particular nation, through a particular people, and that all the nations of the world are going to be blessed as a result. So we have this cosmic thread running through the entire story of reconciliation of all things to God. The question we might have, though, if God is working through a particular people, and we know that Abraham goes on to have children and fathers a nation, and we see through the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the Bible that that particular nation is the nation of Israel. That question can always be at the back of our minds, I think, a little bit, as readers of this text today. Doesn't it sound a little bit exclusive, maybe? That God might be working through a particular set of people, a particular family, a specific lineage, a nation. And it could be very easy for us to read this today and go, well, that, that isn't me, is it? I can't trace my lineage like that all the way back to these people. So how would we begin to answer this question that we might have? And I think I'd say this. I don't know if you've noticed, but Glasgow isn't exactly the Garden of Eden. Now, I know it's really nice at times, and I know its name means green hollow and dear green place and things like this and evoking images of lovely gardens. But it's not quite Eden, is it? It's probably quite apparent to you. This promise made to Abraham that he would be blessed to be a blessing marks this bold movement in the Genesis narrative that God is calling people back out of the deepest exile to dwell with him again. But it's a bumpy story. The rest of the Bible is just this bumpy story, this messy story of people, for every step they take seemingly towards Eden, there are slips and falls on the way. There's all these markers that we get. Noah, Abraham, Joseph, David, almost like these new iterations of Adam each time. And each time they fail or fall in some way. But it would only be Jesus who would be able to fulfill all that was required to be the new Adam. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance, as appearance as a man, he humbled himself not reaching out and taking by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Abraham was obedient to the call of God, but it was Jesus who was obedient to the point of death. So as a result, God establishes that through Abraham, that he's working through particular people, but that through Jesus, we are counted in that lineage. This is Paul in Galatians 3. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations would be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are being blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That blessing that Abraham received is available to you 
and to me through Christ. So God is working to reconcile all things to himself. And he wants to do that through a particular people. And now through Christ, we are that particular people. No more exclusivity. All are included. Abraham received this blessing, and then he sets forth on this journey with God to an unknown land and an unknown future. He was promised that he would have so many descendants that he would become an entire nation, and yet he and his wife Sarah at that point in time were unable to have children. Abraham had to receive that blessing on faith. And faith means stepping out, putting your full weight on the assurances of God. And I think it's interesting that the evidence of that blessing really today is this room, this room of people. As remarkable as that sounds, that through Christ, those who follow Jesus today are evidence of God's faithfulness to Abraham, that we are deeply connected to this story. God is working through particular people to bring reconciliation. Blessed to be a blessing. I think for me that phrase, blessed to be a blessing, has always kind of, it's always been attributed to a kind of version of the prosperity gospel a little bit. That it's always that used as a kind of justification. Well, I've got lots of riches and material possessions. God has given me all of this so I can bless other people. And it's always, I've always felt with that phrase, it's been a bit like, well, that's great for you, but, you know, some of us don't. But really, I think this blessing is to be counted, to be counted amongst this particular people who God has chosen to work through, to bring his blessing to the world. And it's so that blessing that might propel followers of Jesus to go, to give of what they have abundantly. I think it's for that reason that Paul's second letter to the Corinthians can be ringing in our ears. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Just that image of followers of Jesus freely scattering their gift, their blessing to those around them, to the poor, to those in need. The world is longing, aching for Edom. Remember that every act of violence, every bad news item, every internal division, every flood, every sadness, every tear, every difficulty and strife is evidence of the fact that the whole world is aching for Eden, for dwelling in union with God. And God is calling us back. He's working to restore and to reconcile. And that's Jesus' mission. Faith in him is a blessing. And it's through that blessing that we also go to bless the whole world. So just as we 
close as we come before the Father who calls us. I just want us to begin with that moment of receiving. I think with the call of Abraham, this story, it's often about, I don't know, always this kind of impetus to get up and go, isn't it? The call of Abraham, it's about leaving something, it's about stepping out into new futures, into the unknown and all those kinds of things. But it's important to remember that really the story starts with Abraham being called. It's God who moves first. It's God who blesses Abraham first. It's God who makes the initial move. God is the mover. And then Abraham goes. So we'll just have a moment of quiet now just to receive. Just for us almost to reimagine the fact that we are part of that lineage. That blessing is ours to receive through Jesus. And then in that moment of just receiving from God, I'll pray for us. Let's just have some moments now just to be quiet, to still our hearts, to receive from the Father who blesses. God, your glory fills the whole earth and your power is beyond measuring. Your gifts are good and perfect. Your love is more than we can know and your grace is enough for everything. Eternal God, we come to you. Living God, we pray that as the Holy Spirit came in wind and fire to the apostles, so your spirit may come to us breathing new life into our lives and setting our hearts aflame with love through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord Jesus, you declared yourself the way, the truth, and the life. Reveal to us your truth and inspire us with your life that now and at all times we may find you in the way to the Father. May your blessings be received with glad and joyful hearts. May our hands be open. Give us the generosity with which you poured out your own life. And may we be blessed to be a blessing to those around us. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.